Back in the fall, we started uh, Deuteronomy, which you may recall Deuteronomy is basically a series of three long speeches that Moses gives as a retrospective to the people covering the time they went out of Egypt till the time when they get to the doorstep of the promised land. Now, we broke to do Isaiah during Advent, so we return now to the speech of Moses, and he's referring this morning to the incident of the golden calf where the people rebelled against God. And this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy. Then I fell prostrate again before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no food and drank no water because of the great sin you had committed, doing that which was evil in God's sight, causing him to become angry. I feared the wrath and the anger of the Lord, that he was angry enough to destroy you. But Again, he listened to me. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I prayed for Aaron also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Christmas Day was a wonderful day at our house, but it provided for me a bit of an existential crisis One of my sons, knowing that I have a penchant for collecting bobbleheads in my office, got me a set of eight biblical bobbleheads. And so he said, now take them to your office and set them up. But I thought, well, now how do I set them up? Do I set them up in chronological order? Or do I set them up in the order of who's the most important or significant or the greatest? And if I set them up in order of significance, how would I decide that? Who goes first? Say, for example, I've got Noah here and Moses. They're both pretty impressive people. Throw Abraham in there and all three of them are very impressive. Noah was obedient in a time that was so wicked that God said, I am sorry I even made this planet. And God decided to destroy the planet uh, and then, uh, but to save people uh, by Noah and his family and saving uh, animals by putting them on Noah's ark. And so Noah not only was obedient to God in building the ark, but was righteous. He was one of the ones not destroyed. So Noah, we might say we're here today, uh, biblically speaking, because of his faithfulness. And then there's Abraham. Abraham was faithful as well. God had told Abraham, you're going to have a child and you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham to this day is the patriarch of the Jews, the father of the Jews, but had to wait a long time to have that child up until he was 100 years old. Finally, he had the child and then God asked him to give the child back. And and Abraham's faith was tested. But we're told about Abraham in the Bible that he believed God and so he was counted righteous. And then we get to Moses, and Moses is the deliverer of his people. They had been in Egypt for 450 years, slaves for a good many years, and he led them to freedom. And then he um, parted the water of the Red Sea. They went toward the Promised Land. At Mount Sinai, he got the law to give to the people, which was good news to organize their life by. And then we're told that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. How do you arrange those three? Well, I needed some help. So I remember something that the ancient rabbis said in the days of Jesus. They said Noah was an obedient man. And Noah was a righteous man. But when God said, I'm going to destroy everybody in the world but your family, Noah, they said Noah never even made a peep. 
Noah never said, well, what about all that carnage? Are you sure you want to do that to people? How, how could you destroy the whole world? Noah just went right along with it. And they said because Noah didn't even protest and try to save the people of Noah's planet, that he was thus less than Abraham, who when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry of their sin is so great. And, uh, and it was great. We know from the scripture that the people of Sodom were not the most wonderful folks in the world. God sent an angel to investigate before making the decision uh, to destroy them, and they tried to sexually assault the angel. But that wasn't the worst of their problems. Ezekiel puts it this way. Ezekiel 18.49 says these people were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned about those in need. The rabbis wrote in Jesus' day that the people of Sodom had made it against the law to give a piece of bread to anyone who was poor or a stranger. They had legitimatized greed and selfishness. They were a wicked people, and yet Abraham interceded for him. Now, he might have known one or two because his nephew Lot lived there, but he probably didn't know them, just knew they were wicked. But Abraham took a risk. And said, God, you don't want to do that. And this is real interesting because it happens right after God has said to Abraham, you know that child you've been waiting for for so long? By this time next year, you're going to have that child. Was he risking his only child by confronting God on this matter? Abraham, in many ways, might be considered superior to Noah. Well, then what about Moses? Moses had to deal with the people who were wicked and prayed for them uh, on a number of occasions. In fact, in this speech, Moses is recalling events from what we find in Exodus. And he said, again, I had to go before God 40 days and 40 nights. This isn't the first time that uh, Moses has had to plead for the lives of these people. And they're pretty wicked. Uh, most, most people now, uh, scholars that are attentive to these things, are beginning to see a pattern in Exodus that says that what Sinai is may be very much like a marriage covenant between God and the people. Because uh, Jewish weddings, you may recall on that day, they were married under a canopy. And so there was a cloud that hovered over this mountain. And uh, marriage uh, covenants in that day, they exchanged contracts. They basically signed the wedding vows like we might say them today. They signed them. And of course, so you had the Ten Commandments as wedding vows. There would be the giving of jewelry, a ring, and instead what you have is that God gives them almost all, all the gold from Egypt as their rings. And so what do they do while Moses is up on the mountain with God? What they do is tantamount to having an affair at the wedding reception. They take off that jewelry, they throw it in a pot, and they create with Aaron's assistance a golden calf. These people are wicked. They're bad. And yet Moses intercedes for them. But I think it's an interesting dynamic because Moses has been with these people for a time in Egypt and now he's with them. It will be with them in the world is with them and will be with them for years to come in the wilderness. And what you see the difference between Moses and Abraham is Abraham prays for wicked people that really haven't done anything to him. Moses prays for wicked people who have not only rebelled against God, they've rebelled against him. They've rejected him. I've done a count one time, or did a count one time, and found out that Moses' family and friends, from the time Moses 
comes to Pharaoh the first time and says, let my people go. His family and friends rebel against him at least 12 different times. People who have been so close to him turn against him. And I want to say that's a, that's a different level of uh, added to this wickedness that you're praying for. These are people who have not only been wicked against God. They've been wicked against you. And I think that makes some difference. Some years ago, newspaper uh, Express News called me and they said, what's the Methodist position on so-and-so? So I put them on hold and I went and got out the Methodist discipline that comes out every four years. And, and I quoted to them the discipline. They said, thank you very much. Wrote an article on that issue. Uh, a couple days later, my name appears with this is the Methodist position. Two days later, letters to the editor come in bashing me for the Methodist position. And I just quoted and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. This, I'm just reading from a book. And they don't even know me. But it didn't bother me long. And I said, whatever, and blew it off. But it would be a different matter if people who had known me, maybe in my family, or had worked with me, say, the 15 years I've been here, had done something like that. That would add another level to it, and that's what Moses is dealing with. People who aren't just rebelling against God, but people who are rebelling against his own leadership. And he intercedes for them a second time. And at some risk, Abraham risked perhaps his only son or that was coming. Moses may risk his very position because God said, I'm going to wipe everybody out and start over with you. And Moses says, you don't want to do that. Moses is risking a lot. Well, what happened? What happened as a result? Well, the first thing is apparently God did listen according to Moses and according to Scripture. And God decided not to wipe out these rebellious people. And I think that's very important because it reminds us that God listens to our intercessions for other people. The prayers that you've made for people in need or others that you know that are hurting, those are not wasted prayers. God entertains and receives those, I think, with special attention. God cares and responds when we pray to other people, especially If they've hurt us in some way, Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Those sorts of prayers really seem to gather a response from God. So God listens. You know, one of the things it says in the letter of James in the New Testament is whenever you pray, you ought to pray according to God's will. Well, there's the $64,000 question. What's God's will? Well, part of the answer is, I think that James has in mind is the Jews learn to pray the scripture. So if you pray God's words back to God, then it's pretty clear you're in God's will. But I think another thing that's generally within God's will is going to be to pray for those who are uh, hurting, especially those who are hurting and they have hurt you in the past. I think God hears those prayers. So the first thing I want to tell you is this prayer got heard. Second thing I want to tell you is Moses is considered by the Jews to be the first prophet He's before Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. He's John the Baptist. He's the first one. And he sets, I believe, the example and pattern for all the prophets that follow, which is this. Prophets are not known, first of all, by the judgments from God that they relay and render uh, to other people. Prophets are known, first of all, for how much they care for the people with whom they are speaking. That they would care enough that they will risk their very lives in order for those people to repent and find life with God. In other words, the prophets in the Bible sometimes bring some very hard words from God to the people, 
but it hurts them more to bring those words than it does even for the people to hear those words. Prophets are known, I think, first of all, by the great deep care they have for people. A lot of people in our day claim to be prophets. I think they're just angry people because they don't really seem to care about the people that they are bringing supposed messages from God. Prophets care. Moses cared deeply, even for the people who heard him. And you better believe this pattern gets picked up and is followed. It's followed by Paul himself. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible is Romans 9. Paul says this about the Jews. He said, I would be cut off from Christ. Translation, I'd go to hell. If my people, would, the Jews, would turn to Jesus. In other words, he said, at the very risk of my own position in Christ, I would give it up if others would come. That's how much he cares. And where does he learn that? From Moses and from Jesus. What happens when Jesus comes? One day the crowds yell, crucify him. And who does Jesus die for? He dies for the very people who put him on the cross. Jesus dies for the very people who kill him. He loves his enemies. He prays for them. He dies for them. Moses would have understood that action. Well, we might ask what happened to Jesus next after he died for the ones who wanted to kill him. We're told he's in the tomb three days and that he arose, that he taught his disciples for uh, 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven and we're told there that he sits as a judge and that one day, Everyone passes before Jesus and every knee will bow. Let me ask you this question. What kind of judge do you think he's going to be? The person who died for the very people who wanted him dead. What kind of judge do you think he'll be when the time comes? Richard Jensen tells a story about a woman he knew. And she was traveling in the Middle East and got arrested in another country. And she was innocent of the charges. She claims that there's no reason to doubt that this is true. The charges were trumped up. She was brought before the judge. And this was before the days of locked abroad, locked up abroad shows on National Geographic or whatever. But she knows it's not going to be good. She's defenseless, helpless, friendless in this foreign country, hauled before the judge in great fear and trembling. She walks in to the judge's chamber, and there behind the desk is a face she recognizes, and the fear turns to relief. For the man who's judge at this place in this country, 15 years ago, was studying law in the United States and lived with her family for two years. She'd forgotten this is where he was. And she knew that she would not only have a fair judge, She would have a friend, and justice happened, things were put right, and she was released. When we come to the story of Moses this morning, I think one of the things that strikes me is how much Moses cares for the very people who have hurt him. But what strikes me even more is how much more so that's the way Jesus is with us. When you come to communion this morning, starting a new year, Don't come as the convicted. Come as the pardoned.